I want you to know this morning that uh, when you walk up here and you share things, either as a prayer request or as a praise item, that that's a blessing to me personally. I want you to know that that's a blessing to everyone else that's here as well. But I also want you to know that that's, that's a really important piece of your own spiritual walk with the Lord. The Bible's clear that uh, though much of the Old Testament is geared towards the sacrifices and offerings that God instituted for the people of Israel, that it was not sacrifices and offerings like that that he's after. And there's a few other things you could add into this, but one of the offerings, this is what Scripture calls it, one of the offerings that you can give to God, Scripture says, is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So the testimony that comes out of your mouth, the words that come out of your mouth, that testify to God's goodness and testify to how you need God. I think both are, are part of the fruit of lips that acknowledge uh, the name of God and the name of Jesus and your dependence upon him and the way that he's been faithful to you. So it's an important part of your own uh, life with Jesus is for those things to come out. I think it's maybe one of the, the understated you think of how you, we often would maybe talk about how, how can you serve God? What kind of offering can you give to him? And we think of the work you can get involved in or how you could go serve somewhere or how you could give your money or how you could, all kinds of things. And those are correct. But we rarely think about the simplicity of lips that continually over and over and again talk about Jesus, talk about God, just as a normal course of life. This is what God is doing. This is what God has done. This is how I need God. All of which are testimonies of uh, the name of God coming out, which is, I think, honoring the scripture that says that's the offering God is accept accepts from you. So, a little aside before we start. Open your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. We're going to take the second half of this verse in today. We're in the middle of a little mini-series part. We're actually getting to the close, to the end, I should say. A little mini-series part within the book of Ephesians that I've been calling Stand Firm. And a section of verses starting in uh, verse 10 and going all the way now through verse 20 that we're going to end up in here that is about our struggle against the enemy. It's about the fight that we are engaged in, I would tell you, on a daily basis against the enemy and what he wants to do in your life. The, the schemes, which that word scheme implies deceitfulness. The deceitfulness of Satan and what he wants to do in our lives. The things he wants us to believe and the ways he wants us to act out on those beliefs that we're wrongly thinking and believing about who God is and about who we are and the relationship we have between us. We're getting to the end of this mini-series part of it. We're actually also getting very quickly to the end of the book of Ephesians as a whole. I don't know if you know this, but we're probably just a couple of messages away from being uh, done with the entire book study. So uh, we're wrapping this up. Stand firm. Now, I don't know if you felt like this before or not, but as we're walking through these different things of the armor of God, and, and I try to do my best as we go through this, I try to give us ways to apply it. I try to, to, to say, well, what does this actually look like to take the shield of faith? Or what does it look like to put on the belt of truth? Um, but in some ways, what Paul has begun, I think he began powerfully, he began fantastically, he began, I mean, he jumped right in from the beginning. I think, honestly, we're still building to the pinnacle because I think we're now, with these last two pieces we're going to talk about, I think we're now getting to the spot where Paul says, I want to tell you how all that actually, how it actually works out in your life, how it actually 
get, comes to be in your life. Because it's one thing for us to have those discussions, right? Like, put on, receive the helmet of salvation. Have the shield of faith, as I said. Uh, have the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the shoes of the gospel of peace. Those are all things that, but it's also sort of like this, well, I, I know I need them and I can talk about how I need them and maybe what those look like and maybe some ways or some tips on how to bring that into my life. But somehow, at least for me, it's felt like it still falls a bit short because some of that is still just me putting them on then. It's me saying, I'm gonna walk over and pick up the shield of faith and I'm going to protect myself. And if I've understood scripture correctly, if that's what I'm relying on, I'm, I'm not gonna win. I'm not gonna defend against Satan. I, I, don't, I can't stand against his schemes. Something has to happen that's beyond that. And I think those last two are sort of the, 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 the flesh on the bones, if you want to put it that way, the application or the, the way this actually works out. The last half of verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 6 says this. Um, we should also, and at the beginning is the take, so we should take the helmet of salvation. The last part is, and we should take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So that's what we're going to spend our day with this morning. Our morning with this morning, not the day. We won't spend that long. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we see two things sort of playing together, and that's where we're going to have to spend most of our time. So let me make just a brief comment about the sword. Because a lot of times I open up with this discussion about the, the peace, and a sword is pretty straightforward, right? You know what a sword is. The word for sword used here is actually referring to a short, um, uh, actually you can refer to a knife, but a short sword. And in the vein of of what we think about, often we could think of the use of a sword, and it's the one piece of this whole discussion that we often talk about is an offensive weapon. We can use it offensively, because you can use a sword offensively, no question. And I wouldn't say that's incorrect to say that. I would tell you in keeping with the thrust of the entire passage, however, that his intention, Paul's intention, I don't think, is for us to suddenly say, well, here's all these defensive pieces, and now I'm suddenly gonna tell you how to go on the offensive against Satan. He's still saying, this is how you grapple hand-to-foot kind of combat with Satan. And it's more in the vein of a sword that is used to parry, if you know what that word is, or block every thrust of the enemy's sword. So you should see it as a, it's, it's a defensive thing. It's, using the def, it's deflecting every kind of strike that the enemy's bringing in. That's what you're using your sword for. You're deflecting. Again, not that you can't use it offensively because uh, the word of God is powerful and effective and use, useful in those regards too. No question about it. But I think in keeping with the text, we're primarily talking defensively. But we're not, I'm not, I don't want to take all the time talking about that because I want to talk about the interplay between these two things because Paul says, we have a sword to pick up. That sword is the spirit. And then he clarifies it, which is the word of God which means there's some kind of interplay here that we have to wrestle with. What is Paul driving at that is the defensive weapon for us against Satan's schemes? We're going to get to both of those things. They actually tie together. We can't separate them, but we've got to take them one at a time, I suppose. So I'm going to start this morning with the Word. The Word, Word, that's there. The Word of God. Now, the word that's used here, the Greek word is the word rhema. Rhema is the Greek word that means an utterance or something that's spoken. There's a number of different words used in Scripture for when things come out of people's mouths. You could talk about um, uh, kaleho, which is to call, or, uh, oh, it just went out of my head now. Laleho, I think, is what it is. I, I, don't hold me to that. It's when, you, when, when someone's in the act of speaking. Rhema is an utterance, something that has been spoken. It's been given. 
The other word that's very similar to this word, which is all throughout the New Testament, by the way, and you're probably familiar with it, it's probably the one you hear more often, is the word logos, right? That also means word. Now, actually, they're very similar. If you would look up Strong's definition for logos, it actually uses the same, like something spoken or an utterance. Logos is actually a broader word. So rhema kind of fits inside of logos, if you want to put it that way, because logos includes not just the things that come out of the mouth, the audible things, the things that are spoken, but it includes the idea or the intent behind that, which is why Jesus is called the Logos Thehas, the Word of God. He is not just, he's not just like the words that God said, he is the embodiment of God, if you want to put it that way. He, he carries with it the intentions and the thoughts of God, not just the ones that came out. Rhema is a little more specific. It's the utterance or the things that were said. It doesn't include the, the broader idea. I don't want to take all the time about this because the, whatever we're going to say, the word of God is powerful, right? The word of God, when God said, let's just, let's just put it this way. When God says something, it's powerful, isn't it? Take, for example, how the world was formed. How did, how did God form the world? What did he do? Yeah, I saw somebody mouth it. He spoke it, right? Because when God says something, it's powerful. I don't know if you do this very often. I think, you, I think you should. I think you should pause for a moment and look around. It's helpful when you do it on a beautiful day, on a sunny, uh, you know, gorgeous fall day, or maybe on a starlit, beautiful moons out kind of night. It doesn't have to be, by the way, because there's all kinds of other wonderful, powerful things about creation. But it's helpful on those. I don't know if you ever stop and just look for a moment and just think about the fact that nothing existed and then God spoke and things started happening. Light came, right? Waters pulled back and land showed up. Like think of this sometime when you're standing on top of a mountain. Now, you gotta go a little ways before you get to there because they're not here. Or think of it when you stand by an endless field of grain and watch and marvel at how the natural things of the world work and realize that God spoke things and they, they just showed up. I do this all the time. I, I do, we just, we're doing a discovery Bible study at, with the teens at the Haven recently and we started, we're gonna discover who God is so we start at the beginning of the Bible. So we're just reading the creation account. And you know, your kids that don't, whatever, kids that don't wanna receive the Bible, don't wanna, whatever, they, they, they're kind of, they wanna pass it off or joke about it. And, and I just, I do this all the time, but I, I looked at them, we're reading it and I just, I looked at them and I said, hey, when's the last time that you like just said something and it just like appeared in front of you, right? Like, like I won $100 and there it was, it just showed up. When's the last time you did that? And of course it's tongue in cheek, right? Because none of us have ever done that. Not even, not even close to that. Do you ever stop to think about everything that we create is actually just using things that have already created? Like we actually don't create anything like new like God did. We use what God has already put there and we create other things out of it. So we can come up with new creations, if you want to call it that. Anyway, I, I, don't, I don't mean to belabor the point. I want you to know when God says things, it's powerful. When God speaks, it's powerful, right? Things happen when God speaks. When Gabriel visited Mary and said, you're going to have a son, you're going to become pregnant and have a son, and Mary was wondering how this could happen, or how it could work. And he says, he says, but just to show you that God can do whatever he wants to, your cousin Elizabeth, is, who people said was way too old to have children, she's like sort of the opposite end of the spectrum that you are. 
She also is, is pregnant. And then he says this line that we all know very well, right? For nothing will be impossible with God. And something I often scratch my head about, because you find very few translations that actually translate every single word in that text, in that verse. Do you know the word rhema is in this verse right here? It's almost, it's not translated in almost any version I could find. I don't know why. Because what he actually says is, for nothing rhema or nothing that's spoken will be impossible with God. In other words, what he's trying to get across is that when God says something, it happens. When God utters it, it's done. I'm telling you, friends, this is what we base our entire hope for eternity on, is that when God says this is what happened, that's true, or says this is what's going to happen, that that's true. If we quibble about this, which I don't think anyone is, but if we quibble about this, I mean, we have no faith, we, we have no foundation for anything that we're believing. It's all based on the fact that nothing is impossible when God says this is how it is. That's what happens. I would tell you, you walk through the belt of truth, it's like, it's, it's God's words, that's what truth is. Well, God is the truth, but the things he's said, that's the measuring line, that's the plumb line, Right? I would tell you that we know what the breastplate of righteousness is because God spoke and said to us. He like recorded it that this is when Jesus comes who is perfect and pure and he became sin for us so that we might become, you know how that, the righteousness of God. That's the breastplate. We wouldn't know it other than God uttered it, right? That, and that came out in words for us now, but God inspired it. The verse was already quoted this morning. It'll come up later in the sermon yet too. The word of God is powerful and it can change things, and it sets things into motions, and it's, in fact, I would tell you, unstoppable, which is why I think James tells us this. Now, we don't often pull James out for this kind of discussions about salvation, but James says at the beginning of the, of the letter he wrote, he says, we should put away all filthiness and the rampant wickedness that's inside of us and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, there's all kinds of beautiful things about this whole verse. I remind you, by the way, do you see the word we should receive with meekness? Do you see that word? You remember that the verse we're reading this morning out of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17, it began with the verb, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, is still under that same verb, take, which last week we covered about what this is. Take is the word dekamai, which means to receive. It doesn't mean to grab it. It means to receive it. So James is actually right on the same page. He says, receive, dekamai, with meekness, the implanted word. Now, I'm telling you, you could spend days just allowing that little section of God's word to sort of weasel its way deep down inside, that there's such a thing that's possible that God's word can be implanted. Think of all the pictures you could ever think of in your head or wherever, however you think of these things in the agricultural realm of how what you do to get seeds to grow and bring forth fruit. They have to be buried, right? You, you make room in the ground and, and you gotta plant it in and you gotta water. All that stuff is part of this, this picture here that the word of God is to be implanted. That means it's not just a cursory reading of the Bible or a cursory understanding or a cursory attendance in, with God's people that you just say, well, I know it's kind of what God said, but I'm, I'm, I'm busy with some other stuff over here because there's something about allowing it to be down deep inside of us that makes a difference. I know it's probably not like perfect theology to think of this way, but I would tell you, you'd be hard-pressed to see those things come out of you if they're not down deep inside of you. 
I know it doesn't actually literally lodge here in the middle, but that's, but that's the where it works for me to show you visually, right? It's not going to come out of me if it's not down in here to start with. You should receive the word of God because it's able to save your souls. And scripture says this about itself, right? That the word of God is powerful. How powerful is it? Well, we all know this verse, right? Hebrews 4.12. You know it has to come out on a day like today. We know it. We have to pay attention to it again this morning. The word of God can do these things because it is living and it is active. It is sharper than, well, look at the picture he gives us. Funny what Paul said and funny what the writer of Hebrews says. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It lays us bare, if you can put it that way. Have you ever had a moment like this? Have you ever had a moment where you're, I don't know, maybe you don't even know you're struggling with something, or you don't know that you're like wrestling with something, and you read something from scripture, and suddenly it's like, you realize like, I have no excuse, or you realize like, oh man, I'm totally wrong, or you realize like, because the word of God is doing something in us. Now, I could just move that on because you, did you ever have that experience where you have that in a conversation with somebody where they say something from scripture? They remind you of something that God says and says, well, isn't, this, aren't we supposed to live like this as people of, of faith? And we're immediately like, now we don't always like to admit it. In fact, universally our response is to get upset about it. But the reality is deep down inside, usually we, we, that's true because we're, we're quickened. That's what the, the scriptural word, the, old, uh, the King James word, we're quickened. We're, we're convicted. We're, we realize instantly. Because it's somehow, do you ever have a moment? Have you ever had a moment? I hope these are all true, by the way. Have you ever had a moment when you're in prayer and you're coming into God's presence and you have all these things that you're, you want to say or all these things, maybe it's all these complaints you want to register, all these things that, that, that you're full up with and i got to go tell. And the moment you start coming into that presence of the Lord and you begin to have a conversation with him, I've had these moments where you, I suddenly realize, oh man, like I'm, <laughs> I'm totally wrong. Like I'm all wet in this. I'm, and I can't even say the things I was gonna say because I know they're wrong. I know my attitude's rotten or I know my misunderstanding is not in the right place. You see the, the reality of this verse that when God is there, and I use that rather loosely, so just, I, I want to be careful with that. But in God's presence, when you're in a conversation with him, it's, when God is there, it lays bare our thoughts and our, the intentions of our heart and the things that are happening inside of us. And we are without excuse. It leaves us in a place where we don't get wiggle room anymore. You know that's why when we're not, we don't want to receive what God wants to do in our life, why we stay away from other believers, Right? We don't press in with them. We don't press into God. We don't spend time with the word. We don't spend time with him at all because we know what it's gonna do to us. We know it's gonna be like a two-edged sword that's gonna rip inside of us and make us realize that I don't have ground to stand on. And if I don't want that, if I don't wanna be revealed that I'm ground to stand on, I'm gonna stay away from it. This is the power of the word of God. When God says things, it changes. When God has spoken, it's done. This is, in fact, as I said before, the faith that are uh, the promises. Sorry, I get this right. The promises that our faith is resting upon. But I want us to. I want to bring in the second part of it because he actually he actually brought the clarification of of the of the weapon we have or the defense we have is the word of God. He said it's the sword of the spirit. 
And I want us to talk, realize the connection that the two have with each other. They, in fact, I would tell you are inseparable. They're inseparable. You know, when God spoke the world into existence, the spirit was there, right? Read Genesis chapter one, verse one. Beginning, everything was dark and void, a void, I'm not getting it quite right, formless and void, and the spirit of God was hovering over the deep. And then God spoke. You know, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for the spirit is ruach. And you know what God did when he made Adam. What did, what did God do when he made Adam? Make sure you're awake. This, this, this is very simple. What did, what did God do when he made Adam? How did he form Adam? How did he make Adam? He formed him out of the dust, and then he was just this thing laying there, shaped like a human, I'm assuming. And then what did he do? He breathed into him. Guess what that word is? Ruach. It's the same word. Then we come to the New Testament, and we read words like this. Quoted this morning, but I'll put it up there again for you to see it. All scripture is breathed out by God. The word inspiration is what uh, Chris had quoted, but it, that's the word. It's breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, I'm going to start, go back to the beginning of that verse, because in the New Testament, you find the exact same dynamic, by the way. That root of that word, it's breathed out, is the word pneuma in the, New, in the Greek New Testament, P-N-E-U-M-A. It means air or breath or wind, pneuma. If you see the spirit referred to in the New Testament, it's the hagios, holy, pneuma, spirit. Or sometimes just the spirit. It doesn't even always have holy with it. It's the same word. We see, we see that God breathed out. I think we are to understand that the spirit was present when God spoke things into existence, just like the spirit is present anytime God is uttering, Right? Anytime that God is moving and active, I don't know if it's fair to say it this way, but it, the Spirit is the vehicle by which He does that. Totally fascinating study that is totally not this morning's subject, could totally take weeks on end of our time, is to see the interplay in Scripture between the words for Spirit and the words for wind and the words for breath. They're all interchangeable. Go back and read John chapter 3, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, and in your translation, it probably is going to use about three different words, but it's all the exact same word in the Greek. It's the pneuma. You must be born again. You have to be born of the Spirit. The wind blows where it will. The Spirit goes where it wants. You, don't, you can't see it. You don't know where it came from, but you see the results of it. All those things are true. He's, he uses that word interchangeably. And here we have the sword of the breath of God, if I can put it that way. The sword of the breath of God, which is the word of God. It's God speaking. And this word we need, right? We need because it's profound. In this verse I have up here, it's referring to the written word of God specifically because scripture, graphe is the word there. It, all scripture, it's breathed out and it's profitable for teaching and for reproof. It's profitable for instructing us on what we're supposed to know. It's profitable for reproof. What does that word mean? Is that a fun word? Do we like to be reproved? Y'all are sleeping out there. I don't like to be reproved. I don't like being told I'm wrong. And yet this does it to me all the time. It's profitable for correction, for shifting my course and saying that's not the right direction. You're drifting. It's profitable for training me 
It's not just all bad things. It's powerful for training me, for being the thing that gives me the strength that I need so that I can be thoroughly equipped. I want you to hear this loud and clear this morning, church, because the first, the primary, the foundational word of God that was uttered to us, we have recorded to us in this book. It's breathed out by God. It's inspired by Him. It comes from His Holy Spirit. It's recorded for us because we need it desperately for the reasons I have on the screen behind, uh, behind me. Right? You need it. I need it. We all need it. We need to live our lives based on it. Nothing that we could claim comes in any kind of form of inspiration from God that goes against what this says is actually from that source because that's what we believe about what God did with the word. I've used this line lots and lots and lots of times. I'll use it again today. This is God's inspired recording of who he is to us, of who we are to us, of what God has done for us and what God wants from us. And we dare not depart from it. Now, when I speak of these things, when Paul speaks of these things, I want you to know that we often need help in understanding this, don't we? We often need direction on how to apply this, don't we? So I said the first primary foundational unequivocal can't fight against like inspired word of God is right here. That's where we have to start. We have to know this. We're gonna, I'm going to try to tie this all together. However, it's also true from Scripture, from my understanding of Scripture, that the Holy Spirit continues to speak to the words of God to us. Now, that could have come out really wrong, so I'm going to be very careful. This is not ever to the level of what this is. That's why I said this is foundational and primary. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit speaks to us today and it will trump or go against what this says, ever. But Jesus, may I remind you, when he talked to his followers, he said, hey, things are not going to go so well, always for you. You'll be brought in front of uh, men who will persecute you. They're going to treat you shamelessly. And then he says this. This is from Matthew chapter 10. He says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak, uses that word, or what you are to say, uses that word again, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. And he goes on with the very next verse and says, it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but that phrase, the spirit of your father, is a very, very, very close correlation to the verse I just had up there from 2 Timothy. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's the breath of God. And you now, and when you get in a tight spot and you're not sure what you're supposed to say, you should not worry about that because at the time, God will give you words to say because you will, it's not you talking, you will be speaking by the breath of your Father. This is what the Holy Spirit is called, by the way, by Jesus. When he doesn't use the word hagias pneuma, which is the Holy Spirit, he is called the paraclete. The paraclete is one, the verb behind that is to parakaleho, which means to call near. It is, if you want to put it this way, it is the constant voice of God calling you to his side, calling you near to God, asking you to come back, return, don't stray. Come back. I'm always waiting here with my arms open. I'm, 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 I'm fleshing out my words to that, so that's not all what. But that's what the, that's what the Holy Spirit, when Jesus said, it's good for me to go because if I go, then God will send the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, and he will remind you of all the things I've said. He will tell you when you're sinning. He will lead you to repentance. He will constantly be calling you back to the Father. Now, when you call someone back, I don't, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to like, I don't want to 
I don't want to stand on technicality. But when you call someone back, what does it mean to call someone back? Like, what, what does calling do? What, what is calling? Calling is speaking, right? Now, I don't think that this happens, like, audibly, like, when we talk to each other. Like, I mean, it could. I mean, God can do whatever he wants. But usually it's not like that, right? And I'm not talking, please understand me. I'm not talking, like, super spiritual moments where God spoke to me and said, no, no, no. I'm referring to the everyday fight against the enemy as he comes and wants to lead us astray where the Holy Spirit is calling and he's saying, I mean, Isaiah said the same thing. He'll be a voice behind you that's following you saying, turn right, turn left, go straight. It is the communication, the vehicle by which God lets you know what this has to say to you and how to walk faithfully according to it. When you read the end of the book and you read John and his revelation, you come to this glorious moment, and I'm gonna turn there because I wanna read one more verse than what I have on the screen back there. You read this glorious moment in John chapter 12 where Satan is overcome. And in verse 10, John says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. This immediately, in my opinion, ties us back to what Paul is saying. We are to stand firm against the schemes, the accusations, the lies of the devil. That's what he does. He accuses us. Now that's, that's been thrown down. And look at what verse says in verse 11 for how those will stand, how people will stand against uh, Satan. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. In this verse, I believe, is the representation of what Paul is saying, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's the testimony. We're going to see this in a little bit. I'm going to try to put it all together. But it's the testimony of what God has said in His Word and what God is leading us to how to live out that Word. That's, they've overcome. I, I could make the case, and I want to be careful not to tie it too closely together, but I could make the case that in this verse that you see up here is the parallel to verse 17 that we've been reading in Ephesians chapter 6. Because the blood of the lamb is the helmet of salvation and the word of their testimony is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. That is how you will overcome Satan. That's how I will overcome Satan. That's, that's how it happens. Now, I'd like to just tie this, I'd like to try to bring some kind of summary to this because I think what's left for us is we have to talk about how do we receive that? How does that actually happen in our lives? And I think there's probably no better way to look at this than to look at Jesus, especially especially because I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And so when he came to us, I, I want to be careful I say this because he's also fully human, and I don't, I, that, all that doesn't work, I don't know how all that works out in my head. I'll just be honest with you. Like, I can't, I can't, I, maybe you can understand that perfectly. I, I don't. It doesn't quite all, how can you be fully God and fully man? I believe it's true, by the way. I'm not doubting it. It doesn't all make sense in my head because my brain is a little finite. It doesn't, doesn't quite capture all those things. But when, we, when Jesus came, we saw him do some very specific things that I think are instructive to us. I'm not gonna say Jesus didn't need them, but they're instructive to us. So if, if you look in Matthew chapter three, if you wanna turn in your Bible, or if you, we're gonna do a little quick exercise to see how well you know scripture. So if you wanna turn there, that's fine. It's not, a, not really like a test or anything. But when Jesus started his public ministry, he came to the Jordan River where John was baptizing people. And let's take the story from there. And let's just, we don't, I don't, I don't, I don't need like exact quotes. I don't need like memorization. I don't need, you know, but just like high level, let's walk through what happened over the next, the next couple of events there that if you're reading the gospel of Matthew chapter three, Jesus comes down to the Jordan to be baptized by John. What ha tell me what happens after that. Uh, John says that he's not worthy to be baptized. 
So John does not want to baptize Jesus. Why not? That's actually a really important piece. I was not going to share this. Isaiah, thank you. Why does John not want to baptize Jesus? Because he's not worthy. He recognizes something in Jesus. In fact, he's already said something about Jesus, right? He said, I baptize you with water, but the one who's coming after me is going to baptize with fire and the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit. Yeah. So it really fits in, thank you, because I was not actually even going to make that point, but it really fits in with, with today. So John did not want to baptize him, and yet, what happened? He did, right? And what happened when John baptized Jesus? Okay, a couple of you said it, so I don't know how all you, how, how all you said it together, but I, I'm assuming you're on the right, right page. The heavens were tore open, right? And the Spirit descended, it says, in the form of a dove, and a voice came that confirmed uh, that Jesus is God's beloved Son. He's well pleased with him. Right? What's the next thing that happens? What's that? You said it. The Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. That sounds somewhat dangerous, but somewhat okay until you know why. Why did he lead him into the wilderness? What? Sorry, my ears must not be working. To be tempted. I don't know if you have room in your theology for this or not. Do you have room in your theology to be led by the Spirit into a place where you'll be tempted? I tend to think God gave me the Spirit to keep me from all harm and so that I don't walk into anything I don't want to walk into, right? To keep me safe. Not the point of the sermon this morning. The Spirit led him to the wilderness to be tempted. And what happened there in the temptation? Let's just kind of walk through those temptations. What happened? So Satan comes and tempts him, right? Okay, so the first temptation, well, okay, we kind of skipped that part, so that's important, right? Like, he fasted for 40 days. That's, that's a pretty good fast, right? Yeah, tongue-in-cheek, right? Satan came and he tempted with food first, and what does Jesus do? How does Jesus fight back against the temptation? He quotes scripture to him, right? Okay, so what happens next? What happens next? Satan's like, okay, you, you're right, you got me. What happens next? Say it louder. Okay, so then Satan starts throwing, throwing scripture at him. In fact, he says, you can, if you remember, he says, take him to the pinnacle, and he says, you can throw yourself down because God wrote about his anointed. Isn't that interesting that Jesus, or Satan recognized Jesus as the anointed of God? But he says, when God wrote that when you, when you, when there's anointed, he won't let his anointed get hurt, so you throw yourself down, and God is going to save you. And Jesus, how does he resist temptation? That temptation? He quotes scripture again, right? He helps him see that he misunderstood scripture. He's misused scripture. And then what happens? Satan's now he's done? Nope, not yet. What happens then? One final one. Okay, he shows him all the glory of the, the, the cities, but he's the, the people, right? And what's the deal that Satan wants to make with, with Jesus? Okay, he, Satan wants worship. What's he, what's he gonna give Jesus? All those things he sees, right? And Jesus, convinced or not convinced? Thankfully. Thank you, Jesus. Not convinced, right? And what does he do? He again, he rebukes him and he says, get behind me. And now finally Jesus, or Satan leaves, right? And Jesus ate it. Now, I don't want to be formulaic about this. Please understand, I'm not trying to be formulaic at all. 
But I see in this kind of interchange, let me just walk through some things that I see that happen. Oops, I was supposed to go to this screen so you can know where you're supposed to be looking. My bad. So I see it's very important, right? If we're gonna talk about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and the interplay of the two together and what that actually looks like for us, I think it has to begin here. You can't take up the sword of the spirit if you haven't received the spirit. You can't be effective in... I should probably have saved this, but you can't be effective in using the word of God against the, the, the temptations of the enemy unless the spirit is in you. I think I can make that claim. I'm thinking probably many of us have tried and probably many of us have failed. We have to receive the spirit, but something even more important than that has to happen because we have to then obey the spirit, right? You have to do what he tells you to do. Again, I'm struck by the fact that Jesus, fresh on the heels of this monumental, what could be climactic moment, God is speaking from heaven and saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And instead of reveling in that glory and just being like, soak it up, I'm going to tell you all these things, the Holy Spirit led Jesus away and Jesus was willing to be led away into the barren, lonely place for 40 days without food. I am just going to be super honest with you, and in doing so, I'm pretty sure you understand that I'm inferring the same things about you. But I do not follow the Holy Spirit to that level of difficulty very often in my life. We have to receive the Spirit, we have to obey the Spirit, and then we have to know the Word, don't we? Because that's exactly what Jesus does. He speaks and every time Satan comes, he says, this is what the Bible says. This is, this is what is written. This was the inspired word of God. And this is my defense against you. And as we already walked through this, it wasn't enough to just to know the word, right? Because we had to understand it. Because Satan knew the word too. He could quote it out. He could give it to you. But you have to understand what that word is. And I think today, I just so you know this, rather than... You, I don't want to present this some kind of like, like one, two, three, four, like this is the order it goes in kind of thing. I don't think that's how it works. I think you should see this as an ongoing cycle that is present in our life all the time, on and on and on. I would tell you that the way to understand the word is through the spirit. So you have to know the, receive the spirit and you have to obey him. When he says, hey, this is what this means, you can't say, yeah, but I don't like that, so I don't want to. I don't, I don't want to interpret it that way. I want to interpret it this way instead. You have to say, oh, that's what it means. Now, this is, this, is, this is not entertaining. We're not entering into discussion about how it works out together. And I'm hoping I've made enough cases through the book of Ephesians already that this was written to a church, which is us doing this all together. Like we do it as individuals, but it's us doing it all together. That's, why, that's, that's, how, things, that's how my misunderstandings get corrected by your, your understandings and vice versa. I told you this last week. I don't get everything perfect. I think I told you this last week, a couple weeks ago. I don't know when. Sometime I told you that. It's still true today. This kind of ongoing, I have to receive the Holy Spirit of the Father. I have to, it's not just a one-time event. It's an ongoing thing where I have to say, Holy Spirit, I want your control of my heart and my mind and my lips and my attitude and my body. I have to obey you. If you're prompting me or 
or moving me along somewhere or, or whatever, however that works out in your life. If that's happening, I have to obey you. I can't pretend that I'm going to stand against the schemes of the devil when I'm disobeying the Holy Spirit. It's not going to happen. And for this to work, I have to know the Word because that's the tool the Holy Spirit uses more than any other tool, probably almost exclusively, I would tell you, for those of us who are in the church. We have to know the Word, but we have to know more than just know it, like have it recorded. We have to understand it. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate what that means to us so that we can give the right verses. It's one of the reasons I tell people like, memorizing scripture is great. You should do it. You should do it, brothers and sisters. But please work on memorizing scriptures that are effective, that meet the battles that you have, that meet the struggles you're facing. It doesn't do you any good to memorize Jesus wept when you're tempted by lust, right? What does you good is to memorize, put on the Lord Jesus Christ so you don't fulfill the lust of your flesh. That does you good. It doesn't do you any good to memorize that God so loved the world because he, uh, he gave his only begotten son. So all, I mean, it, that's good too. I'm not saying, but when you, when you are losing your temper, it's far better for you to memorize a couple of Proverbs that tell you that if you cannot control yourself, you're like a city that's broken into and left without walls and defenseless. Because it's effective the next time you want to lose your temper. Or if you get easily offended, it doesn't do any good to say, I, run, I know the word in the beginning was, I, I'm just making, I, I hope you, it, you need to know that it is a glory to overlook an offense. That's what the word says. So that when you're tempted to be bitter about it and hold it against somebody, that the Holy Spirit can quicken those verses, those words to you and say, no, no, Satan, no, no, that's not how it works. That's not where I'm going. It's not who I follow. My flesh is crucified. Christ lives in me. And it's to my glory to overlook an offense. I don't know how today hits you, but what I do know is often, I'm gonna end with this, and I know it often is, it, it, it's an answer, it's something I say that I wish it wasn't always like this, but yet I'm firmly convinced this is exactly how it, it's supposed to be. Many times, you, maybe some of you sitting here have been the recipients of this or have experienced this with me. Many times, when we're trying to find a way through a situation or trying to figure out what to do, Many times, in many instances in our life, we want cut and dried, here's the direction, here's what you do, here's how you respond. You do this and this and this and this. And numbers of times I've been asked by people, like, is this the right way to do it or should I do it this way? Is this the right way or should I do it this way? Are these the rules I should have? And I, over and over and over again, I'm glad to share my opinion, I'm glad to help you work through this because this is where it needs to come out of the Holy Spirit-based convictions from the word of God. But in the end, I believe if I am to lead you faithfully in following Jesus, I have to tell you that you need to get your marching orders from Jesus, from the Holy Spirit. Amen. And it's not easy or cut and dried. It's not like clear. I'm pretty sure the word of God says that the righteous live by faith and that pleases God. So that tells me one of the most important things we could ever do is to continually ask God to keep us filled with the Holy Spirit that we are set aside and God's Holy Spirit is inside of us, leading us, controlling us so that we can respond as he wants us to in every 
situation. God, as we are closing our prayer time this morning, it just seems like a perfect opportunity. And I, let me just say this as I'm praying, Father, I'm communicating to you, but I'm communicating to the church that I'm pastoring. I believe that I'm in a room full of people that are filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is not, a, this is not where I'm coming from, and I hope that you can convey that to them. I'm not saying we're, we, we're, we're not, we need to be somewhere where we're not. But as we are, have this opportunity, just much like I would say every time I have the opportunity based on salvation, I would say now is another day that I can declare to you, Jesus, that I receive what you've done for me on the cross and I want to live based on you being Lord of my life. I now follow that up by say, to, what does it mean to let Jesus be Lord of my life other than to be filled with your spirit, your presence? It is the hope of glory, Paul wrote to the Colossians, is that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. So today, as we're sitting here, I, I, I think you want nothing else from us except for us to look to you and to say, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to be bound by your word that you've inspired and given to us. I relinquish control of my thoughts, my ideas and attitudes, my, what comes from my flesh, and I surrender it. I bind it to the mind of Christ. We've been talking about these things. But I want to have the sword of the Spirit the word of God, I want you to have control to be able to tell me what to do. Help me to have a hunger to pick up your word and to read it. Help me, God, to be filled with your spirit as I do that so that I can understand how it applies to my life and what it has to mean and how, what, what that looks like in, in, my, in my flesh and bone bodies living out in this world, in this culture. And help me to rely upon you Having been saved and having this work started by the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to finish it with my flesh. So I want to have the Holy Spirit's continued working out of my salvation, if I can put it that way, or phrase that I had, we had last week. Help me to continue to be surrendered, that I can actually move according to the impulses of you, Holy Spirit. So blessed this morning, God, by the story that Autumn shared, only because of how it fits in with this so help me to know when I need to speak and when I need to be quiet. Help me to know when now is the time and when it may be years. Help me to know that even when I don't know when the time is, that it may be, I have no idea. It, it may, I, 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 I don't actually get that knowledge from you to be faithful. Help me to be surrendered to your Holy Spirit, Father that I may walk in the truth, that I may have the breastplate of righteousness, that I may have shoes that are full, fitted with the gospel of peace as I interact with you, God, and with those around me, that I may have the shield of faith, that I may have the helmet of salvation on my head. Thank you that you've given us a sword that is effective. In Jesus' name, amen.